The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. It's been our privilege the last few weeks to be going through the book of Revelation. We are now in chapter 2. Today we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Which is the church of Pergamum, which I called the worldly church by virtue of what was going on. Oh, uh, while you're flipping there, if you need a Bible, raise your hand because we've got Bibles uh, available. Anybody need a Bible? Follow along. You can borrow a couple. Good. So while they're going down there, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. Then you can follow along with me as I read this book of Revelation, the last book, probably the last book written in the New Testament by the Apostle John, the only apostle that was not murdered. But in his old age, he was arrested and shipped off to a penal colony at the island of Patmos out in the middle of the sea. And that's where he was when he received the revelation from Jesus Christ directly of visions, primarily about the future, but some things that were going on in his time as well. And then he wrote it all down for the churches, the historical churches in Asia Minor, but also the churches of the ages and even for us church today, what God's plan is for the future and what happened historically. So let's go ahead and look at Revelation 2, 12 through 17, the third of the seven churches that John addresses. Jesus is talking and Jesus says, and to the messenger, some translations say angel, the best translation is messenger, a human messenger who was responsible for for passing these seven letters out to these seven churches that were historical. And to the messenger of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but the one who receives it. Those are Jesus' powerful, sobering words to John to give to the saints at the church at Pergamum. By way of reminder, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ and His plan. We're going to see Jesus Christ in glory and primarily of how He consummates history. That's what the theme of Revelation is all about. It's all about Christ. It's a Christ-centered book. Another thing we keep highlighting and I want to keep going back to is the blessing of the book of Revelation. Reading it, hearing it, obeying it. That's Revelation 1.3. God gives this promise, a promise for a blessing 
and he doesn't do this for any other book in the New Testament this way. It says, Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So there's a blessing for reading, studying, and applying the book of Revelation. That is awesome. That's practical. We want to be blessed, and that's why we are going through Revelation as a church. Another thing I want to point out is the divine outline of this book, of how we approach it and how we should study it and understand it so we have a proper perspective from God's point of view. That's Revelation 119. Jesus told John the Apostle, basically this revelation that's going to be written out and constitute the book of Revelation should, has three main points to the outline, past, present, and future. And he says in verse 19, write, for, write John, therefore the things which you have seen, that's chapter 1, the vision of Christ. That's point number one. Also write the things which are, the things that currently exist that are going on right now. That is in John's day. So that would be Revelations chapter 2 through 3, the seven churches that existed in John's day. And so that's what we're looking at right now. And then there's a future element to this book, and that's the end of verse 19. John, also write down the things which shall take place after these things. I keep saying this is a technical prophetic phrase, first given in the book of Daniel, used again by Jesus in Matthew 24, and now implemented a couple of times by John in Revelation, technical phrase referring to future end times prophetic things that happen at the end of world history, which tells us Revelation is primarily talking about the future and the end of the age, starting at chapter 4, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 22, verse 6, specifically. That is all future. It has not happened yet. So that's the context. It's very helpful for us. So now we are in the uh, part of looking at chapters 2 and 3 where Jesus is directly addressing seven churches that existed in the day that John was alive. He pastored in the area of Ephesus for about 30 to 40 years. He was arrested as a pastor, probably while as the pastor at Ephesus, for believing in Christ, preaching the word, refusing to bow the knee to Domitian the emperor, who insisted that people call him Lord, John refused to do that and was arrested as a result and sent off to prison. That's where he is when he's writing this book. So Domitian, the Roman emperor, is ruling during this time as John is writing. These seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, were probably the result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul who went on many different church planting journeys and planted several churches. We know that he was a pastor at Ephesus for three years and he preached the gospel all throughout Asia so that everyone heard the word of God while Paul was there. And as a result, you've got all these churches that sprang up in Asia Minor. Now it is 40 years later after these churches were planted by the Apostle Paul and his associates. And John is giving us the words of Jesus and Jesus is assessing those seven churches at that time. And he's directly addressing them as the Lord of the church because he has the authority to do so. So let's go ahead and look at how Jesus addresses this third church, the church at Pergamum. But before we specifically get to the church of Pergamum, just some reminders of practical lessons we can learn and apply from Revelation 2 and 3 and apply them to our church. And here's what we've learned so far. These seven churches in Asia Minor, they were real churches. They are historical churches. And they are not periods of church history. They're real churches. Some like Tim LaHaye would try to make us believe that these are referring to specific, different periods of church history. That's not in the context. These are just real churches that John was aware of, one of them which he pastored. Uh, also, these seven churches that Christ selected to highlight and showcase serve as models for every other church that existed from the time they were around. So there are lessons to be learned from these seven churches, practical lessons for all Christians and all churches of all ages. 
Another important principle is that all these churches are different and unique. Every single one of them is different. Not one of these seven churches is identical. They all have their own unique personality. That is huge in terms of its relative or practical importance for us. Not every church is the same. And you know what? By God's design, not every church should be the same. I think about two months ago, I ran into a Christian couple and we were working on an event together and they found out I was a pastor and they were a little surprised. And, oh, cool, you're a pastor. Where are you a pastor yet? And then I told them where I was at and then their next question was, so what model do you use? What model do I use? For what? For how you do church. Uh, I, I don't get you. What do you mean what model? Well, it, the Rick Warren model or the, uh, the Hybels model or the this model or the that model or the emerging model, which model do you use? I said, oh, wow, I thought there was only one model. We just used the Bible. I felt kind of ignorant and naive. But anyway, but the point is there shouldn't be cookie-cutter churches and Christians. Every church is unique and distinct, and we see that clearly in Revelation 2 and 3. What model do we use? Well, we just tell us what Jesus commands us to do in Scripture. So I guess if I had to answer the question, we use the biblical model. But all churches are different and unique, and all churches have their strengths and weaknesses. Very important. Does GBF have its strengths? Absolutely. Does it have its weaknesses? Absolutely. Number one, I attend here. Uh, Weakness. But anyway, very important. Can't look down our nose at other churches uh, because Jesus is the Lord of all the churches. Here's a comment that some people say, um, well, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect church. Well, I would agree with that. But there there are obedient churches. And there are healthy churches. And there are disobedient churches. And there are compromising, unhealthy churches. I don't like that statement when people say that. To justify some kind of behavior in their church. There's no perfect churches. Yeah, but there are obedient churches, healthy churches, and disobedient churches. We see that in Revelation 2 and 3. Philadelphia and Smyrna, obedient churches. Healthy churches. Laodicea, disobedient church. But it's a real church. Another principle. In Revelation 2 and 3, every one of these seven churches was precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them. Despite their weaknesses, despite their compromise and sin, every single one of these churches was precious to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people try to say, that, well, Laodicea wasn't a true church. Yeah, it was. Jesus was the head of that church. That was His precious bride. He had a heart. He loved that church. And despite all of its compromise and sin, it was a true church. Why is that important? Well, because we can have a tendency to sit in our little church and look down our nose at all the other imperfect churches around the neighborhood and in the valley and in the Bay Area. They've got, all, they've got this problem. They've got that compromise. I left that church because of this problem. And we look down our nose in a critical fashion at other precious brides that belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord of the church. We are not. I don't even have it in my mindset to be thinking about another church and assess it and judge it because I don't have that authority. It's Jesus' church. Let Him do that. I have enough to worry about regarding this church and overseeing it. Very important principle. Another important principle, Jesus is the judge of the local churches. He wants to keep them pure and He will go to great lengths to do that. Another principle about how Jesus deals with this church is we're going to see in Revelation 2 and 3 and have seen already, Jesus talks bluntly to His people. He talks bluntly to His church. He doesn't candy coat anything. He talks bluntly. He talks truthfully. Sometimes He talks severely. But He also always addresses this in the context and from the motive of love. Just because you love somebody doesn't mean you ever that you refrain from talking severely or 
truthfully or in admonition. That can flow from a heart of love. And it does with Jesus as he's talking to his church. And Pergamum is going to be no exception. Last principle that we can learn in a practical way from the way Jesus talks to these seven churches. And I love this and I've mentioned it before. There are five churches that have compromise and sin. There are five churches that Jesus rebukes for their sin. But before he rebukes any one of them, his pattern is before he gets to the rebuke and their sin, he commends them for what they're doing well. You are doing this well. I want to bless you because you're doing this well. You're being faithful. You're being an obedient church in this specific area. But I have this against you. So he's balanced in his assessment. Many times, I'd probably say most of the time as humans, we are not balanced in our assessment. We are not fair. We are not objective. The Lord Jesus Christ perfectly balanced. If a church is doing something good, he's going to bless them and let them know it. He's going to encourage them and tell them to keep on doing that good thing. And then he will address the compromise, but we need to do the same thing in how we relate to people and other believers, especially if we have to go talk to somebody to confront them of sin, we think of something good first to say that is legitimate, that they are doing well or that we appreciate. You are doing this well. So practical principle, and the church at Pergamum, again, is no exception to this. So let's go ahead and look at the worldly church, the church at Pergamum, and four things I want to highlight in this passage as Jesus talks to them that we can even apply to our own church because Jesus invites us to. And the first principle there is just the destination. This is true of all churches. They start out the same, same format, addressing what church Jesus is talking to. So the destination is Pergamum, or the church in Pergamum, verses 12 and 13. So the messenger of the church, and the messenger was probably a man or a messenger, an actual human being that attended the church at Pergamum, probably maybe an an influential leader or representative of that church. And they came to visit John out there on the island of Patmos somehow. And John gave them literally the, the book of Revelation, and they were to be a courier and take this back to that church. So the messenger of the church of Pergamum, right, and in every single one of these seven letters before Jesus addresses the issues at that local church, he makes reference to himself as the Lord of the church and he highlights one of his specific attributes that is relevant to the problems in that church to what they needed to hear. So he caters it very specifically. Every church is different and unique. Therefore, as Jesus addresses an attribute about himself, it is unique. So what is the attribute Jesus refers to himself? Uh, the second part of verse 12. The one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. The church of Pergamum had strengths and weaknesses, but with respect to their weaknesses, what did they need to hear? Who did they need to hear from? They needed to hear from the one who had a, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. That's how Jesus is described in Revelation 1 and Revelation 19. A sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And in that day, this mammoth sword that was double-edged, it just had primarily one connotation. And you wielded it as a warrior. Many times to, to kill. It was a sign of judgment is what it was. So it's speaking of the, the Word of Christ. His words, they are powerful. They are piercing. They are judgmental. He's going to sift this church. They had good things they did. They had compromises. And he wants to divide the two with the sword of his mouth. He wants to clearly define, Jesus does, what sin is and what sin is not. Because they had it convoluted in Pergamum. They were tolerating unbelievable sin, even as a legitimate church. And they were allowing 
sin to go on in the church for whatever reason. And you know what? Churches do that today. Good churches or real churches, bona fide churches, tolerate sin. I've worked at six different churches. I have worked at churches that tolerated sin. And churches tolerate sin for a lot of different reasons. Many different reasons. God knows ultimately why. But what they need to hear is the clear word of Christ that defines sin, pinpoints it, and says that is sin that needs to be dealt with. So Pergamum had a problem. It was the worldly church. It was tolerating sin. The worldly church, by the way, and Tim alluded to this earlier out of 1 John, what does it mean that they were worldly? They were being worldly. Well, Scripture is clear about worldliness. Worldliness is just tolerating the things of the world, the attitudes of the world, the lifestyle of the world, all of which primarily is sinful. It is focused on the here and now, instant gratification. It uh, totally neglects looking at an eternal perspective and eternal consequences, consequences, and they don't even care or consider or think about what I do which honors Christ. That's worldliness. But it's an emphasis on the here and now, usually the physical, and immediate gratification in any area of life without an internal perspective before God, to whom we have to give an account. And that's what they were doing. They were tolerating worldliness in the church, so they need to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ with his double-edged sword so that he can clearly define for them what sin is. It goes on in verse 13 regarding this church at Pergamum and what was going on there at Pergamum. By the way, Pergamum today is Bergama with a B. It's a city. It still exists. It has. Uh, when John wrote it, it probably had about 150,000 inhabitants today. It's about 50,000 inhabitants. Um, and the order that we've got in, Ephesus, we went to first. And Ephesus still exists today, but it's not a thriving, bustling city with people living in it. It's a place of ruins and archaeology. As a matter of fact, the Highness just went there and went to Ephesus and then went up to Smyrna, which is now Izmir. And so Nancy was telling me about that. Went to Ephesus first, which is just in ruins, and then about 40 miles up north, then another port city, which is Smyrna, that we saw last week. And then about another 30 miles away from Smyrna, maybe a little more, is this next city. And we're, so we're going north. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. And of the seven churches, Pergamum is the furthest north, and then we're going to start going down. So it was like a, a logical postal route that these messengers were being sent on as they passed these letters along. Significant things about Pergamum is that Pergamum was really the capital city of ancient Asia Minor, is the capital city. Uh, they entered into kind of a treaty with the Roman government in the first century before Christ. As a matter of fact, they had a couple of temples dedicated to Rome and to a Roman ruler at the time. So they were totally entrenched in cultic, imperial, Roman worship of the Caesars, humans, and their gods. It was a pagan society in false religion. And Pergamon was known as the capital city, and they had at least four temples dedicated to Greek gods as well. So it was flagrant, blatant, the false worship and idolatry. But of all these cities that we're going to look at, the seven, uh, Pergamon was the one that was most controlled by the Roman government, and in particular, the cult of emperor worship. Domitian reigned at the time that John wrote. Domitian was a maniacal egomaniac. And he demanded that people worship him and call him Lord. He was a tyrant. That's why he had John arrested, because John refused to do that. So Rome has authority 
and rule over this city called Pergamon. And they are demanding that their citizens, at a minimum, once a year, worship Caesar or Domitian as God. And they were going to implement persecution and consequences for anybody who didn't bow the knee to Caesar. That's what's going on here. And that's why in verse 13 regarding Pergamum, it is called, the city of Pergamum is called by Jesus Satan's throne. Satan dwells there. That's his point of origin. What was Jesus talking about? That's where the worship of the Roman emperor was strongest. That was the headquarters of it all in, in all of Asia. It was the worst there. And the other cities... Your life was at risk maybe once a year when there was a national holiday where you had to actually burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. It happened more routinely in Pergamum than any other city. It wasn't just once a year. And like I said, the consequences were severe. Death could be the penalty. As a matter of fact, verse 13 goes on. I know where you dwell there in Pergamum, where Satan's throne is, where Rome rules and Domitian has his power and demands that people call him Lord and you hold fast my name. So these Christians at Pergamum, they didn't give up. They didn't abandon the name of Christ. They held on to their identity as Christians in the face of persecution and the threat of the sword. They didn't deny the faith because compromisers will. Fake Christians will deny Christ in the midst of trial and persecution. They will abandon Christ. That's why in a persecuted church, you always have a real, pure, deep church. So this is what the people of Pergamon would be commended for. Being faithful, holding fast uh, the name of Christ, not denying the faith even in the midst of persecution and maybe even going to jail, tortured, death. Except one person did not escape death there in Pergamon. Middle of verse 13. You were faithful, didn't deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one. So apparently a believer named Antipas was executed and killed. And because of the context, we know he probably died because he refused to recant Jesus Christ. And it could very well be that Antipas maybe was the leader or a significant figure in the church at Pergamum. And they probably thought, okay, if we just take him out, we'll scare everybody else and make everybody else recant. Well, they didn't. Even when their leader, or this significant figure, this Antipas, this faithful witness of Christ, when he got executed, the others didn't bail. So this was a faithful church in the midst of persecution. Despite their problems, they were faithful, they were real Christians, they held to the name of Christ. And Jesus commends them for that. Two times he says, I know where you, you dwelt, where Satan's throne is. And then he, at the end of the verse, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Satan uses people. Satan works through people. Satan's demons live inside people. That's why he could refer to Satan. I'm also surprised and reminded how many times Jesus refers to Satan in these references to the churches in Asia Minor. Satan is real. He is alive. He is vicious. He is wicked. He is powerful. He is a, a real threat. And as Christians, we need to be cognizant that Satan is on the, on the move. He is a real. When was the last time? I asked you this last week. In the last week, did you even think of Satan? Did you pray against Satan? Did you ask God for protection against the devil? Because Jesus asked us to. We need to as a church. It's a reality, and Jesus keeps hammering away on it and reminding us there is satanic opposition that is real, despite what the world says in all their surveys, where 80% of Americans say that Satan is not even real. He's fantasy and fiction. Well, who cares what the world says? Jesus says Satan is real. So that's the destination, this church at Pergamum. Uh, let's go on to point number two, the condemnation. This is after they were commended for being a faithful church, even in the face of persecution and death. 
for being a Christian. So point number two is the condemnation. Jesus is going to rebuke them, warn them, condemn them for two major compromises, worldly doctrine and living. Worldly doctrine, worldly living. Doctrine is teaching. So this was their compromise. So Jesus commends them for what is good in verse 13. Now it's, okay, we've got to do business. Verses 14 and 15. And it's two main things. They had false teaching going on. And it probably wasn't necessarily from the leadership, but what the problem was, because there were some that were faithful. The problem was, is that the church had false teaching going on in pockets of the church, and apparently those in the church knew about it. And the problem was, is that they tolerated it. They tolerated the bad teaching. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't speak up. Many times churches do that. They know there's teaching, they know there's compromise, and they don't speak up and do anything about it because they don't have the courage to do so. The church at Ephesus had courage to deal with false teaching, didn't they? They dealt with the false teachers. They were discerning. They put false teaching to the test. And if necessary, implemented church discipline and kicked the false teachers out, purified the church. They hated false teaching because in Revelation 2.6, Jesus said He hates false teaching. I'll never forget a seminar I went to back in Atlanta one time with a whole bunch of pastors and theologians and one guy presented a seminar and it was called, I was just intrigued by the title, Things That Make Jesus Angry. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. That does not sound like the loving Jesus. Things That Make Jesus Angry. And I went to the seminar and he showed clearly, categorically from Scripture that the number one thing that makes Jesus angry as we see Him in the Scriptures is false teaching, especially in the church. Three times in 14 and 15 right here, he refers to the false teaching. Two times in verse 14. The teaching, the teaching, it is an abomination. In verse 15, uh, you tolerate teaching that is wrong. So what should be the priority of GBF to be a healthy, obedient church that pleases Christ? We need to make make a priority of biblical teaching, faithful teaching, teaching with integrity. What is teaching? Teaching is communicating the Word of God. It is communicating truth from God's point of view as He's given it to us. We need to preserve that truth and only that truth. And it comes from the Bible as the Holy Spirit helps communicate it and helps us understand it and apply it. We need to preserve the faithful teaching of Scripture and not compromise. That is so easy to do. Out of cowardice or whatever. To compromise good, faithful, biblical teaching. This was their downfall. So that was the main wrong thing, was bad teaching, heretical teaching, unfaithful teaching, bad teachers, compromised teachers. And that led to the second thing that was bad. That was wrong living. Here's an important point for the Christian life. How you live always results from how you think. Always. This is a biblical principle. The Apostle Paul knew that. That's why just about every one of his epistles is written the same way. Up front, he gives teaching first. Then, when he's at the end of his epistle, he talks about how to live it out. Because he knew that that living flows from teaching. Duty flows from doctrine. Practice flows from precepts. It's all the same thing. And that's why all of his epistles are filled with indicatives, statements, teaching, and then... His epistles conclude with imperatives. How you live it out. So I guarantee if Jesus were to examine how you live, your discipline of life, your pattern of living, 
things you do, what you say, how you, all that stuff comes from how you think and how you have been taught and how you understand Scripture and how you understand God, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. Living flows out of teaching, and that was the problem here. And so they had bad compromised teaching, and as a result, they had bad compromised living in the church. And what was even worse is the church knew about it, and they tolerated it and didn't expose it and didn't deal with it, didn't hold them accountable, did not practice church discipline, unlike the church at Ephesus. Which, when we started GBF, we came up with about 20 bullet points of things we wanted to be distinctive about our church. One of those that we want to, on a regular basis, practice biblical church discipline. That means identifying sin, confronting sin, calling sinners to repentance, hold them accountable so that they make a choice either to the right or to the left, to obedience and repentance, or to be hardened in their sin. That's church discipline. This church did not do that. And as a result, it ended up in compromised living. The specific kind of teaching that they were doing was the teaching of Balaam, Balaam was a prophet. He was a false prophet in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. He was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to curse Israel as Israel was going to the promised land. Three times Balaam tried to curse Israel, and the words that came out of his mouth were blessing from God because God wasn't going to allow Balaam to curse Israel. You can find those in Numbers 23 through Numbers 24. So Balaam was getting frustrated because he couldn't curse Israel as a prophet of God. And so he thought, hmm, how can I cause Israel to stumble, fall, and get in trouble, well, I can't do it prophetically, so I will appeal to their most baser lusts, which is what? Sex and their appetites for food. And that's what he did. And so Balaam talked with Balak and was able to engage the Jews on their way to the Promised Land by enticing them with the beautiful pagan Moabite women. And all of a sudden, a lot of these Jewish men got involved with these women because they were beautiful and delightful to the eyes and everything else. And it appealed to their baser lust. And they got involved in sexual immorality with these Moabite women. And then after that, they just adopted everything about their life, including their false worship and their orgies and their religious festivities. And Israel, right in the middle of the desert, got involved in that, as many as 24,000 of them. Of these two million or a million Jews that were going to the promised land. Right there in the middle of the desert. Compromised. And it came from false teaching from Balaam. God was angry. He hated it. He exposed it. He talked to Moses. And he said, I want every one of these persons to be executed who has been involved. And you can read the story in Numbers chapter 25. And so Moses gave God's decree. If you have compromised, you've been involved with the Moabites and sexual immorality and worshiping their gods and being involved in their orgies right out here in the desert, you are going to die. The curse of God came. Thousands of them were killed on the spot. Right in the desert by God. That's what this is talking about. And so a similar thing happened in the church at Pergamum. Bad teaching was allowed. It was probably very subtle. Little by little. Kept growing over time, snowballing, getting worse. Nobody said anything about it. They were too uncomfortable. Or whatever the compromise was. Justifying it maybe. We do that sometimes. Or maybe sometimes we redefine sin and tolerate it, marginalize it. Oh, it's okay. By the way, it's not sin. It's a disease. We do that, don't we? Drunkenness is not a sin anymore. It's a disease, we're told. So a lot of justification went on and bad teaching continued to go on and out from the bad teaching came sexual immorality. At the end of verse 14 it says, uh, a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Immorality is the Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography. It means of any kind of sexual deviancy, sexual compromise outside the context of marriage as God has defined it 
one man, one woman who are married in a private relationship before God. So all kinds of sexual immorality was going on. It was being tolerated in pockets in the church at Pergamum. And this infuriated Jesus. Not only do you need to deal with the people who are doing the sin, uh, you guys are tolerating it so you're just as guilty. Deal with it. And then in verse uh, 15, there was another group of teachers called the Nicolaitans doing basically a similar thing, teaching things that led to sexual immorality and idolatry and satisfying the basic appetites of humanity. Even related around food, because that was so much a part of paganism and pagan worship and pagan festivities was the food, the awesome, delicious, delightful, eye-appealing, appetite-pleasing, insatiable food that was provided alongside all of this false religion. And they were compromising as a result. So that's what Jesus condemns them for. And so he's identifying the sin and saying, here it is. Pornography, porneia, sexual immorality. The church should not tolerate it. Idolatry, wrong priorities, supplanting God and his priority in your life. So Jesus deals with it. Let's go on to point number three. That's the condemnation. So after addressing the sin, specifying the sin, this is also a good example for us. Before you call somebody to repentance, you've got to tell them, number one, what they did wrong. Number two, you have to be very specific about it. Number three, you have to define what the sin is from Scripture. You have to define what their sin is from Scripture because many times Christians uh, find it easy to condemn somebody or accuse somebody of a sin when it's really not a sin. It's a preference they have. Show me from Scripture why that's a sin. Very important. That's what Jesus does. He defines it. So we need to do that. But then we need to call people to repentance. So that's number three is the exhortation. Jesus exhorts this church. He calls them to turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. Turn is a synonym for repent. Turn is a great word. So that's why in verse 16 he says repent. Repent, therefore. Repent, repent, repent. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus came and the first thing out of his mouth was repent. He was talking about unbelievers. Here he's talking to the church. Repent. Christians need to repent. I need to repent daily. We all need to repent daily before God. Examine our hearts. Have the Holy Spirit search our hearts. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Repentance needs to be a Christian discipline we implement daily in our life. To keep clean to keep open communication and fellowship before God, to walk with a clear conscience. It is so important. Continually repenting before God. If you do it sincerely, the promise is He will wash you clean anew. He will alleviate your conscience. that's bothering you and nagging at you. It's a promise from God. So Jesus calls uh, believers, He calls the church to repent. Repent, therefore, don't be a tolerant church anymore. Be discerning. Deal with the sinners. Confront their sin. Call them to repentance. Tell them to honor God. Repent or else I'm coming to you quickly. That is an act of judgment. I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is amazing yet severe language. Jesus is talking to the church. I'm going to make war with them. I was interacting with a pacifist last week who's a Christian. And their view is that war is always wrong all the time. But they're a Christian. I'm like, well, that wow, that's not possible. Do you read the Bible? Do you believe in the Bible? Do you believe in Jesus? Because if you believe in the Bible, you can't say that war is wrong all the time because God is a God of war. And here Jesus is doing it. And He's threatening it against His own church. 
If you don't repent and deal with this sin and this sexual immorality and wrong priorities and idolatry in your church, I'm going to come to you as a church and I'm going to make war with you with the sword of my mouth. That's an act of judgment. It is sobering, but it's real. Repent, therefore. Uh, the Bible, especially in the New Testament, has about four key words for repent. And I, I think it's best when we put them all together because that's a true portrait of repentance, what it is. And, and the progress of repentance. This word metanaeo means to change your mind. You know what? That's where repentance starts. First, you deal with sin in your mind, in the heart. The will is invoked. You have to make an internal decision on the inside and be willing to change your thinking about that behavior and that sin. That's what that means, to change your mind on the inside. It starts on the inside. That's where repentance starts. That's one of the key words for repentance, metanoia, to change your mind. It starts on the inside. Only God knows if we're doing that legitimately or not, doesn't He? And then after you change the mind, there's another word in the New Testament that talks about confess your sin. Amalageo, to say the same thing. In other words, to admit verbally your sin. So you start changing your thinking about it. You get convicted. Then you verbalize it. Yes, I sinned. Please forgive me. Here's what I did. So that's the chain of repentance. It starts on the inside with the mind. Then it becomes verbalized as we confess it. And then another word for repentance is turn. Turn from your sin. So it goes from the mind to the mouth to the, your, the action. You turn and go the other direction. I will turn from this behavior and go towards Christ, towards holiness. Yet Satan in our flesh will try to always turn us back, right? But we've got to keep turning and keep focused. That's repentance. And it's got to happen at every level. And the only way that we as humans can examine if somebody has truly repented is we can only examine the external fruits, right? We don't know their heart. We don't know their mind. Only God knows the mind and the heart of a human. All we have to look at are the fruits of their behavior, their actions, and their words. That's the only thing we can assess. And that's why John the Baptist told the compromising, hypocritical Pharisees when John the Baptist was baptizing everybody, calling everybody to repentance, to follow the Messiah, all the... Sadducees and Pharisees were getting baptized and John the Baptist knew they were hypocrites because he saw their life, their actions, their words. It wasn't consistent with repentance. And John the Baptist publicly called them out and said, have fruits in keeping with repentance. Your life, your actions, your words don't match your confession. Or this act of repentance, you supposedly. So those are the fruits of repentance on the outside. So Jesus calls them, to repent, to turn from this behavior. That is His exhortation. If they do repent, they'll be blessed and forgiven and restored. And they will grow and be protected by God. If they don't repent, judgment is coming. God's wrath will come down even heavier. His hand of chastening, even on His children, will come heavier if we don't repent. That brings us to the fourth point as Jesus is talking to the church at Pergamum. And boy, after that severe language and that heavy-duty call to repentance and saying, I will make war with you, uh, he doesn't end on bad news. He, he doesn't end any of these letters and is talking to the churches on bad news. So it's beautiful. That is the Lord Jesus, the Lord of mercy, grace, love, compassion, patience. That is the character of God. He starts every address to the church with blessing and a commendation and He concludes every single one of them with words of encouragement and one last call to heed and repent and be blessed. And that's point number four. And that's the invitation. This invitation is to the people at Pergamum. It's to the leaders at Pergamum. It is to the, those involved in sexual immorality at Pergamum. It is to the rest of the church who tolerated that sinful behavior. This call and invitation is to everybody. 
This invitation is to every church that existed at that time in Asia Minor. This invitation existed for every church and Christian throughout church history. This invitation is directly to us as well. We know that because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear. Hey, Christian. Hey, spiritually minded. Regardless of when and where you're living, I have a promise for you. Good news. The invitation. What is it? Well, it's personal heavenly satisfaction and privilege. Personal heavenly satisfaction and privilege. Satisfaction, the idea there is, well, what were they doing? They were involved in sexual immorality to appease their baser appetites. They wanted satisfaction. They wanted immediate gratification. And so Jesus is about to promise them, saying, there's something better beyond immediate gratification and satisfaction. There is eternal satisfaction that I can provide for you. Whether it's sexual immorality or the food you desire and eat and get compromised with. So here's the blessing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, says to the churches, all churches, to the one who overcomes. So that's the promise is to the overcomer. And we saw in 1 John 5, where John, the same author at the same time, said, who is the one that overcomes? It is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So it's a synonym for being a Christian. It's a synonym for being born again. So if you are a Christian here this morning, you are also an overcomer. An overcomer. A conqueror. You've overcome sin because Jesus died for you and He rose again from the dead. You have overcome the world. You've overcome death, the eternal death. You've overcome Satan. You're not His slave anymore. He will hound you. He will try to tempt you, but you are not His slave or pawn anymore. You've overcome Him through Jesus Christ, the greatest overcomer. So this promises to any Christian, and every Christian is an overcomer. It's great cause to not get down in the dumps and be depressed. Oh, oh, woe is me. I'm a loser. No, you're not. You're an overcomer. You're a sinner, but have overcome in Christ. So what's the promise? So Jesus says to the overcomer, to, to the overcomer, I will give two things. I will give hidden manna. And this is a reference to the Old Testament as a million Israelites were going through the desert, headed to the promised land, and God rained down supernatural provision for them to eat for all 40 years that they were going through the desert, and it was called manna, manna from heaven. It was supernatural. We don't know exactly what it was. I personally think it was kind of like angel food cake because angels, they're like up in heaven, and man, I can eat a lot of angel food cake to the point where I get sick, but not necessarily. That's not necessarily a scholarly point of view. But it was manna from heaven, literally bread from heaven, bread from God that came down from God's provision for them to be fed on and sustained by so this is a reference again to the Old Testament. But it's not the literal manna from the Old Testament because it says he, get, he says it's hidden manna, special manna. So it is symbolic manna. There's a key in Revelation. He lets us know when he's talking about a symbol. This manna is a symbol. It's hidden manna. What is hidden manna? Well, a couple references there. Uh, God told Moses to take some of that manna, put it in a jar, and have a sample and put it in the ark where the Ten Commandments were and close it and put the lid on top and don't anybody touch it and don't anybody look in there. But it was a reminder of God's provision for His people. The hidden manna inside the ark. And Hebrews tells us that there is an ark. That, that physical ark that Moses had made was only a replica of the greater eternal ark that literally exists in heaven. There is an eternal ark in the presence of God in the heaven of some sort regarding God's Word, His truth, His presence, His provision. It's eternal. It is hidden because it is up in heaven. And Jesus' promise is, if you, if you stay faithful, if you remain an overcomer, if you are a true believer, in the future I'm going to reward you with hidden manna, eternal manna. I will 
satisfy every inclination that you have. Not just immediate gratification, but eternal satisfaction. And the hidden manna is Christ Himself, really. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He was referring, he was comparing himself to the days of Moses. When the, God sent bread down as a provision for his people. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. And Jesus has left us. And he is in heaven now. We don't see him, says Peter. And Jesus is the bread of life. And he is in heaven. He is the hidden manna. This is a promise and invitation of an eternal, personal, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who will satisfy all of our needs for all eternity. He is the bread of life. He will provide anything we need, even in this life, everything we need, and eternally everything for us to be satisfied. It's amazing. Great promise. The bread of life. Jesus offers Himself to every believer. Personal interaction with Him. The bread of life. You will have no needs in heaven. But the problem is you've got to get to heaven first, don't you? In order, you've got to get into heaven to have the bread of life to see where Jesus is. And not everybody goes to heaven. You have to be invited to heaven. God is the one who has the right and dictates and determines who goes to heaven, not humanity. God does. And we only get to heaven on God's conditions. And God has stipulated very clearly what those conditions are to get to heaven. And if you haven't been invited by God to go to heaven, if you haven't repented of your sin... And don't what He's asked you to do by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on your behalf, believing that the Father punished Jesus on the cross for your sins, believing Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death, ascended back into heaven. If you don't believe that, crying out to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you're not going to heaven. Bottom line, what you need to get into heaven is an invitation. And that's the second part of this great promise. I'm going to give you hidden manna, total satisfaction, by virtue of a relationship with me for all eternity. And I'm also going to give you a white stone. Everybody as you came in today, hopefully, boy, if you didn't get a white stone, you're in trouble. But anyway, hopefully everybody has a white stone. I just wanted this to be a visual reminder. This is white marble in case you're wondering. If you don't have a white stone, but you have a different color kind of stone, you're also in trouble. It's supposed to be a white stone. But as best as we can determine, as Jesus says, I will give to the overcomer a white stone. Well, how can you get excited about that? What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Well, the best that we can determine from history, in Rome and in the Roman government and Roman provinces like in Asia Minor, it was customary and routine, and we know this from history, that any time, sometimes when someone won a an athletic game, or they were a victor in some event, one of the rewards was a white stone. It was a precious white stone. It was a little white stone. And usually it had something written on it. Many times it was their own name. That belongs to you and nobody else. You drop it and lose it, nobody else gets it. Nobody else can use it. Your own personalized credit card. That's what they received. So Roman citizens would receive these white stones periodically and with that stone, that became actually entrance or a ticket into some grand event held by the empire. Usually some majestic celebration or feast. So Jesus is being very deliberate and specific here. Boy, some of you in Pergamon want to entertain and go to these pagan idolatrous feasts because of all their food and all that goes on. I know of a better feast. I know of the marriage supper of the Lamb that's happening in the future for all eternity that you can be blessed by and only those who are invited may go and they have to be invited by God. And what you need is your white stone, your personal invitation from Jesus Christ to get there. So this is how Jesus is encouraging them. I'm going to give you a white stone as they do in the Roman government, but this is for eternal purposes. 
This white stone, this is your invitation to heaven right here. This isn't what gets you in. This acknowledges the fact that you've accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And you know Him personally. That's why you're getting in. And as a result, you're guaranteed you're going to get your own white stone so that God will allow you into heaven. So this speaks of individual privilege into God's immediate presence. That's what it speaks of. Another interesting thing about this stone, notice it says, a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but the one who receives it. It is only God and you that are going to know the, the new name that you receive on your personalized stone. So what's that name? I don't know what it is. Because it says right there, nobody knows it. And you won't know it until Jesus tells you what it is. But this is amazing. Uh, all throughout Scripture, starting with Adam, names are significant, especially when God names something. Names mean something from God's point of view. Adam, made from the dust. Abram, when he got saved by God, God changed his name to Abraham, father of a multitude. And when you get into heaven, God is going to give you a new personal name as a Christian. That speaks of new, glorious identity where you have intimacy with God one-on-one. You're not going to get lost in the crowd in heaven. He's going to know you and call you by name, whatever that new name is. And he will call you that name and no one else will look around. You will look eye to eye with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's the promise. Personal intimacy with God in heaven. Amazing, great truth. So that's the invitation. And that invitation only comes and can be received by appropriating the salvation that God gives that it's articulated in the gospel. Let's go ahead and close and thank God for His truth, His grace, His Word. Father, we do thank You for our time together. Thank You for the church, for building the church. Thank You for Scripture, the Word of God that is living and active, how it penetrates our mind, our hearts. You use it to bless us. You use it to correct us and chasten us. Thank You for the Holy Spirit that is our teacher, helps apply the Word. God, thank You that You are gracious for giving God because we are all sinners and fall short and have feet of clay. And God, we need Your help. We need your help, your grace, and your mercy. And thank you that you are so merciful and forgiving for those who will just be convicted, repent, turn to you, cry out, and you're going to forgive. And God, I just pray that you'd remind us of that all week long. That You're the gracious, merciful God, a Savior seeking sinners. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.